Christmas isn't always merry and bright. Sometimes it evokes memories of lost loved ones, failed dreams and disappointments. And when the world is celebrating that silent night when Christ was born, some of us are enduring our own dark and quiet night. But we must remember in the dark what we have known to be true in the light. The truth that sustains us through difficulty, hardship, loneliness and despair. You are loved. God is near. God can redeem this. You are not alone. I was in the back of an Uber in Montreal this last January. It's a lot colder there than it is here. And I was traveling uh, with one of our elders, a friend of mine named Graham, because I was preaching at one of our sister churches there in Montreal. And Graham and I landed at the airport there and hopped in an, an Uber to get to the hotel that we were staying at. And the man driving the Uber was born and raised in Montreal, so very Quebecois. So uh, he's got his GPS going in the vehicle to tell him where to go. And I said, I think my route is shorter. Why don't you uh, just kind of delete your GPS or turn it off or whatever, and I'll tell you where to go. And he said, yeah, great. That's no, no problem. And so uh, I, I begin to tell him where to go. And I said, okay, in, in about a kilometer and a half, you're going to turn right on a street called Rue des Laurentides. Now, if you speak any French at all, you know that my accent is really impeccable. Very, very good. Very, very good French accent. And, and he said, I, in a very thick French accent, I beg your pardon, you know. And I said, yeah, a kilometer and a half, probably a kilometer now, you're going to turn right on Rue de Laurentides. And he said, my friend, you're in Montreal. It is Rue de Laurentides. <clears throat> And I consider myself a fairly culturally sensitive individual. I do. I work hard because I'm American, and, and, and Americans don't always have a great reputation globally. You know what I mean? So I work really hard when I travel in other countries to try to demonstrate for people and help them believe all the wonderful things Americans are always already believe about themselves, right? Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm working hard to do. And so I wanted to be sensitive to what was going on. And, and I said, okay, you know, uh, however you pronounce it. And then my Texas comes out. It's like, I don't know, man, it's a rude de Laurentides, you know, and that's where we're going to turn right. So the guy gives me an eye roll that was like borderline going to start an international incident, right? Graham is in the seat next to me covering his face in laughter, like cannot stop laughing. And I think that, that, that the U.S. and Quebec are going to go to war, right? Because of what I've just said in this Uber. And I kid you not, and there's no word of a lie, his GPS clicked on and the woman goes like this. In 800 meters, you'll go right on Rue de Laurentides. <laughs> and I was so happy. Um, you know,
know, and, and, I, and essentially I just said to him, you know, you're welcome because Americans, we invented GPS. That's why it pronounces everything with an American accent. And I'm telling you what, what I learned in that moment is that a minor misunderstanding can cause a major malfunction sometimes. A minor misunderstanding, just a little wrong pronunciation, incorrect pronunciation, though I made an effort, a valiant effort to pronounce it correctly. That could have gone haywire and sideways really fast. We could have had a major malfunction on our hands because of a very minor misunderstanding. There's actually a book on shelves right now called Talking to Strangers by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, who's actually from Elmira. And he talks about the ways in which very minor misunderstandings have led to major mishaps and major malfunctions in the lives of individuals, in cities, communities, cultures, nations, very, very small things, very minor misunderstandings can lead to major malfunction. When it comes to this truth that God is near, and he is, he's right here with us, God is near. When it comes to this truth, oftentimes we have minor misunderstandings about what that means, or, or about what God is going to do when he comes near. And we set up some expectations for God that God never intended to meet. Or, or, or we ascribe to God promises. We say, God, where are you in the middle of my pain and hurt and difficulty and challenge? And what we mean by that is, God, I want you to take away my pain, hurt, difficulty, and challenge. See, we ascribe expectations to God that weren't his expectations to start with. And because of that minor miscommunication or on minor misunderstanding on our part, it can cause our spiritual lives and our emotional lives and our relational lives to derail. And what happens when things derail? Well, you have a train wreck on your hands. And so what I want to do this morning is, is really two things. One, is I want to clear up some of those miscommunications of what it means when God is near, and maybe even better said, what it doesn't mean that God is near. And then what I want to do is tell you a little bit about my own personal experience and hopefully impress upon your heart this wonderful and glorious truth that God is most certainly near to you. Before we open up God's word, would you pray with me? God, some of the content that we're going to discuss this morning may be difficult, challenging. It's not always difficult to hear, but very, very difficult to apply when we feel like we're enduring a silent night or a dark night of the soul. So God, impress these truths upon our heart. God, clear up misunderstandings, misconceptions on our part so that we see your nearness even in difficulty and suffering. We praise things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to 1 Kings chapter 19. It's a little bit of an obscure book in the Bible, maybe an obscure passage for some of you. Some of you have probably heard this before. And it's the story of a prophet of God that lived long before Jesus came around. And he's a man named Elijah. Elijah. 
Elijah lived in Israel and Israel had really come off the rails when it comes to their covenant promises to God. In fact, they had intermarried with people who worshiped other gods. The very king in Israel was married to a woman who worshiped Baal. Her name was Jezebel. You may have heard that name before. And things were really, really bad spiritually in the nation of Israel. And so Elijah, as God's prophet, as his representative, his megaphone, begins to speak not only to the nation of Israel, but also those who are worshiping Baal. And he says, look, here's the deal. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you. And here's the challenge. You build an altar and I'll build an altar. And what you're going to do is you're going to pray to your gods and goddesses or whatever to send down fire and catch that sacrifice on the altar on fire, burn it up, send fire from heaven. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray to Yahweh, my God, and we'll just see what happens. So that's what happens. Both the prophets of Baal and Elijah construct their own altars. And the prophets of Baal construct an altar, and then they begin to pray day and night and just call out to Baal, call out to Asheroth, call out to these false gods. And what happens? Absolutely what? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Talk about an awkward moment there, right? Like, we've been praying for days. What's happened? Nothing. But we're going to keep praying, right? Well, because they're praying to a God who doesn't exist. So Elijah goes, okay, is it my turn now? Here's what I'm going to do. Not only am I going to pray, but before I pray, I'm going to construct the altar and then have it soaked with water. So that's what he does. He has it soaked with water and the trench around the altar actually fills up with water. The stone, the wood, the sacrifice, everything is completely saturated with water. And Elijah goes, God, show yourself. And he sends fire from heaven and the whole thing is consumed. Even the stones are consumed. So immediately Jezebel, who was a worshiper of Baal, feels like she's been, you know, kind of thrown under the bus a little bit here. She, she feels like this is not good for me. This is not good for my people. So here's the deal, Elijah. By the end of the day tomorrow, you'll be dead. And so Elijah does what any of us would do. He ran, right? That's where we pick up our story in 1 Kings 19, verse four. It says, but he himself, that's Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Uh, The Bible repeats what Elijah's doing and repeats this word broom tree twice. Isn't that interesting? Under a broom tree. I wanted to give you a picture of it just so you can start to kind of picture what's happening with Elijah here. A broom tree looks like this. It's a tree, the shrub that kind of exists in first century Palestine and they were large and, and, and still are in that same area of the world. Very large and they provide shade and all the time in scripture, broom trees are associated with despair and depression. No one's ever happy under a broom tree. They're not like palm trees. You ever been under a palm tree and been sad? I haven't. Broom trees are for sad people, right? They're they're for people who are despairing of their life. And that's what's happening with Elijah right now. Not only that, but he actually prays to God. Look at this. He says, I want to die. It's, it's, this is enough for me, just take away my life, which is fascinating to me because not only does God say, no, I'm not gonna take your life now, but you know, Elijah never died. 
he was taken up into heaven. He never actually experienced death. It's just kind of God's funny way of saying, I'm not gonna answer your prayer now and I'm not gonna answer it ever, right? I just love that about God. But, but this is where Elijah is. He says, I am totally and completely done. Elijah is going through his own dark night of the soul. He's going through his own silent night. He's going, God, where are you? God, are you listening? God, what's happening to me in my life? I don't know if you've ever been there before. Sitting under the proverbial broom tree, praying, God, I think I'd just rather die than keep enduring this. Just a real quick, um, you know, this is a little bit of a little bit of counsel this morning, maybe a little bit of a heads up is just like Elijah doing this great work of prophecy and his dark night of the soul followed this great work that he did for the kingdom. The same is true for your life and for my life, that the bright light of God's work often precedes the dark night of the soul. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but when God does big things and great things and when he uses you for his kingdom purposes, a lot of times, Darkness, despair, spiritual depression, difficulty follow those moments. I have a nickname for these moments in my life. I call them Monday. Because this moment here for me is challenging. I love it. I love you. You're wonderful people. But, but I pour myself out spiritually and emotionally each and every Sunday. And so Monday, a lot of times I can barely get out of bed. Same is true with Elijah. The bright light of God's work often precedes the dark night of the soul. What does that mean for you? Well, it means when you're having a fight with your spouse, and I know you're church-going people, so you don't fight with your spouse. But hypothetically speaking, if you knew someone who fought with their spouse, you could tell them this, okay? So you're fighting with your spouse, and you get to this moment where it's like, we are just going to buckle down and work it through. And you say things that maybe you don't mean and forgiveness is extended and you express emotions and you listen and empathize and you start to make some progress. And by the time one, two o'clock in the morning rolls around, this fight that started at 6 p.m., you ever had one of those fights? Not, not 6 p.m. today, but 6 p.m. like four days ago. You ever had one of those fights? Those are fun ones. Have we been fighting for four days? Yes, we have. And it's your fault. That's what I tell Amy. But... Like you lay down at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and you've put so much effort and poured yourself out spiritually and emotionally and you're holding hands and you're thinking, this is my partner in life and I love them more than anything in the world and we worked it through. We worked it through. You can expect that the next day might be spiritually challenging because the dark night of the soul often follows God's bright light of work. It happened for Elijah and it happens for us. Let, let's say you've been praying for someone at work or praying for a friend or neighbor for a very long time that, that they might come to know Jesus in a personal way. Maybe you've extended an invitation to them and maybe they come to you and they say, hey, I, I know I've said no a bunch of times, but I was wondering if your church is running Christmas Eve services, which we are, 5, 6, 30 and 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve. You should know that, by the way. So uh, they say, I I'd really like to go. And you think, oh my gosh, I would love that. I'm so thrilled. And I just see this bright light of God's work. A lot of times the dark night of the soul is gonna follow that. 
For some of you who are in ministry jobs or uh, not just jobs, but avocational ministry where you contribute and love people. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's in her 90s. It's a caretaker for somebody. And when she pours herself out spiritually and emotionally, a lot of times the dark night of the soul follows. You can just expect it. Here's the second thing that I want you to know. Second misconception that I want to clear up is that God's ultimate purpose for you is your holiness, not your happiness. I hope you know this. And this is not popular. Like this is, like, (laughs) could you imagine me like writing a book and selling a book like at Costco that says, God's purpose is your holiness, not your happiness. You think that's flying off the shelves at Costco? Probably not, right? But here's the thing. When we expect that God would come near in order to make us happy, he's not gonna live up to those expectations because that wasn't his promise. His promise was not to enter in and take away pain. In the same way for Elijah, he didn't say, God, I would just rather die. Okay, let me fix it all. I'll just obliterate Jezebel and I will raise you up to to power in Israel and I will just clear all this stuff out and I'll make it all right for you because I want you to be happy, Elijah. God says, no, no, no. My purpose for you is that you would be conformed into my image, into my likeness. My purpose for you is that you would be on mission for me. My purpose for you is that you would be a torchbearer. So I'm coming near, yes, God says, in order to make you holy so that you're on mission. But I'm not coming near to make you happy. That's not how this works. But God is indeed near. He is near and he comes near now to Elijah, even in the midst of these misconceptions, even in the midst of these difficult and false notions that Elijah is believing, God comes near. Watch this. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. This is Elijah. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God's been so gracious. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Watch Elijah's response. That's Elijah's response. Oh my gosh. Every time. <laughs> he, Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Okay. If I had a nickel, For every time I've prayed this self-righteous prayer about you people, I'd be a very rich man. If we had a nickel for every time you've prayed this prayer about your friends and family, we'd never have any bills at our church ever again. We'd all be very wealthy people. We could all retire now. How often do we think this of ourselves? God, I'm the only one left. Uh, It's... I'm a, I'm a pastor. None of you people are pastors. You know, I, I've, I've been very jealous for you. This is not even true. That we, What we're going to find out here pretty soon is that there are like 7,000 people left in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But, but in Elijah's simple little mind, he thinks that he did so much for God that now God owes him something. This is not a conversation you want to get into with God. One of the things that just kind of continued to come to the surface in my own heart, even as I read this passage this week, is I'm watching Elijah assume that 
Because God seems distant, Elijah assumes that God's the one who moved. And he assumes, I haven't moved. I've been righteous. I've defended your name. All of Israel has moved and God, you've moved. And that's what happens when God seems distant, we assume he moved. The reality is, when God seems distant, one of two things, either A, you moved, or B, you're not listening. Because he's there. He's still near. That truth is still something that can shape you and move you and saturate your soul. But if you begin to assume that it's the righteous king of kings who's abandoned you and abandoned his promise, that's problematic. Here's the second thing I I want you to see here about Elijah is Elijah is having a tough time connecting with God because he's looking for God on his terms. And if you're looking for God on your terms, you won't find him. See, Elijah expects that God's going to show up again and obliterate his enemies. He expects that God's going to make life easy for me. He's thinking, why am I under a broom tree? I should be under a palm tree. He's looking for God on his terms. I don't know about you, but it's easier for me, at least I feel that it's easier for me, to be near to God when life is good, right? When you get a letter from your insurance company that said, uh, we accidentally collected too much money this year, here's a big refund, right? You ever got that letter before? I haven't, but maybe you have. When your relationships are good, when you've been promoted at work, when things are rocking along, when you come here into this place and you really kind of feel and sense God moving, it's so much easier to be faithful and know that God is near. And yet, God uses our pain and our struggle and our difficulty to show up and face us on his terms, not ours. Listen, This is why the religious leaders missed Jesus completely. They were looking for God, the Messiah, to show up on their terms. They expected that the Messiah would show up and overthrow the Roman government and give Israel power. They expected that the Messiah would show up and be a little rule follower and a a law giver and keeper like they were. And Jesus shows up and he's hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and he's not overthrowing any government and he's establishing a new kingdom and he's calling them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. And they completely miss that this is Emmanuel, God with us, because they were looking for God to show up on their terms. Watch this. This is what happens in Scripture. Jesus is interacting with a man who is demon-oppressed, and he was blind, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So he was deaf and uh, blind, blind and mute. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Maybe this is the Messiah. Watch how confused the Pharisees are because they're looking for God to show up on their terms. But the Pharisees, religious leaders, when they heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. What did they just call Jesus? They called him the devil. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big miss, don't you think? That's a pretty big misunderstanding that would result in a major malfunction for the Pharisees because they were looking for God on their terms. And if you're looking for God on your terms, even if he were to show up in the flesh, you'd miss him. 
St. John of the Cross uh, wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul in the 16th century. And he writes about uh, these dark times that we go through where God shows up on his terms in order to make us holy. And St. John of the Cross wrote this. He said, and thus they, that's us, desire to feel and taste God as though he were comprehensible by them as though he was accessible to them, not only in this, but likewise in other spiritual practices. In other words, we look for God on our terms. We look for God when we need him, when we want him, when we want him to fix stuff, when we want want him to take away pain. And yet God says, I'm not showing up on your terms, I show up on my terms, and here are my terms, watch this. All this is a very great imperfection and completely opposed to the nature of God. In other words, if you're looking for God on your terms, You're not going to find him. It's impurity in faith. It's impurity in faith, St. John of the Cross says. Friends, this is is difficult teaching, I know. I mean, there's so many preachers and pastors out there that would tell you that God is here for your happiness, that God is here for your success, that the more faith you have, the better you're going to do at work, that the more faith you have, the better your relationships are going to be. And there was one man who walked this planet that had more faith and obeyed God more than any of the rest of us. His name was Jesus. How'd his life turn out? Not great, right? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless. I'm not saying that God doesn't come near and do that kind of stuff. But when God comes near, you must allow him to come near on his terms to accomplish his purposes. Because if you don't, you're going to miss him. I love you. I love you. That's why I say difficult things like this. Because friends, if you're looking for God and you expect him to show up on your terms, you're going to miss him. And I don't want you to miss him. Here's what God does. He says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord But the Lord was not in the wind. Can you imagine this with me? Elijah was once under a broom tree, crying his self-righteous little eyes out. Then he moves to in this cave and God says, all right, come out to the cave. And he passes by and Elijah begins to hear a wind. Not just a wind, but a wind that began to rip rocks apart. Now God's shown up. That's what I would assume anyway, if I were him, right? Now God's here. Now God is gonna change this. He's gonna take away the pain. He's obviously here. The Bible says that God wasn't in the wind. And after a wind, an earthquake, and the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. As we just sang, he came like a winter snow. Quiet, soft, slow. So after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, my favorite verse in the passage, the sound of a low whisper. That's so good. It's it's so good for a lot of reasons. Watch, here's the thing. First, this word low whisper in the original language, Hebrew that your Bible's written in, uh, it just means silence. It means silence. This is, so what is the sound of silence? Like Simon and Garfunkel wrote that, right? Sound of silence. What is, the, what is the sound of silence? That's why translators actually translate this, the sound of a low whisper because silence doesn't make a sound. But I don't know if you've ever been in a space where silence is deafening, right? Where you have a relationship with somebody and you text them. 
you text them again, and they're not texting back. You ever been in that moment? It's like, I see you've read the text message, you know? Or you're at a party and everything's great and everybody's having a blast. And then when everybody leaves and you're just by yourself driving in your car on the way home, when everybody leaves your house after the holidays and you've recently lost that person you've been married to for however many years and the silence in your home is absolutely deafening, this is the silence that Elijah is experiencing. He's not experiencing the thunderous wind or a roaring fire or a mighty earthquake. He's experiencing the quiet, still, small voice of God. Men and women of God, what I want you to know today is that when we begin to look for God on his terms and not ours and expect him to do God's stuff, not do our stuff for us, that God is nearest to you in your pain. God is nearest to you in your pain. So I saw in chapter 34, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit, that God is nearest to you in your pain. You know why? Because pain tends to quiet us enough that we can hear the still small voice of God. For those of you who, who have been walking with Jesus for a while, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, I could. But those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a time, I've been walking with Jesus, I don't know, for 20 years, something like that, maybe more. If we were to ask and answer this question, when has God been nearest to you? You would say, in my pain. In my pain. At a funeral, during my divorce, when I got diagnosed, when I was going through mental illness, and some of us who maybe have been walking with Jesus for just a couple years, God comes near in blessing and in celebratory times and in really great times. And that's great. That's God. He is speaking to you. But God is almost tangible. It's like you could reach out and touch him in the midst of your pain. I remember one particular time in my life, one of the most painful experiences I've ever been in. I won't even get into the detail of it. One of the most painful experiences that I've ever been in. I was driving in my vehicle and I was praying as if God was in the seat next to me. God felt so close to me, felt so near in the midst of my pain that I had to stop for gas. I got out of the car to pump gas and I went, oh, sorry, I'll be right back because he's just so close in your pain. This is why St. John of the Cross writes this. He says, the soul suffers all these afflictive purgations of the spirit to the end that it might be gotten anew in spiritual life. This is what God's up to. By means of this divine inflowing and in these pangs may bring forth the spirit of salvation. Friends, God is nearest to you in your pain. Sometimes, you know, we know what causes the pain that we're experiencing in our hearts. Uh, relationship dissolves, broken promises, busted up expectations. Life doesn't turn out the way. You stand, I, I did a funeral yesterday. I know why there was pain in that room. I know that. Sometimes we experience pain, difficulty, and disappointment, and we're just not sure why. Here we are enduring a dark night of the soul, and we can't even put our finger on what caused it. That's what I experienced in my own personal life two years ago. I shared a little bit about that last week. 
I went to God just like Elijah went to God. I'm like, God, I've been serving you since, I've been in vocational ministry since I was 18 years old. And the rest of these people, you guys, by the way. (laughs) And it's like God had to use that pain to quiet my voice down enough so that he could speak to me in a still whisper. The silence was deafening for a while, but he did. But he did. Friends, whatever it is that you're enduring today, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever difficulty, I want you to know that God is near. And he's using it. He's using it to lift your countenance towards him. He's using it to quiet your heart so he can speak and be heard. He is nearest to you in your pain. One more quick illustration that I hope is helpful uh, as we kind of seek God together and then what we're gonna do is spend just a moment in prayer together. We talked uh, quite a bit last week about God's fatherly love for you, how he loves you immeasurably more than you could even imagine, that he loves you unconditionally and without strings attached. That's the way I endeavor to love my kids. I don't always love them that way, but I endeavor to love them that way. I've got two, uh, Kai's five and Canaan is 16 months old and Canaan is just starting to walk. Uh, Last weekend, he actually took his first steps, which was really cool. And his little wobbly, little chunky legs, right? Like uh, he's doing great. And so we have a couple of options right now with Canaan. Uh, One is to do what it is he wants me to do, which is daddy. He doesn't say it. He just gestures. Pick me up. All right. So I pick him up and then he points and grunts where he wants to go. And I know that means fruit snacks. I know that's what that means. Right. I want to eat. And he's just pointing and grunting. I'm like, am I your chariot here? What's Are you Cleopatra? Like I'm just kind of carrying you around like wherever you want to go. But then we put him down because he's got to learn to walk. And there are moments when he throws a little bit of a fit. He sounds like Elijah does, right? You've left me here to die, right? Just going crazy on me. And here's the thing. A bad dad just lets either of those things go and play out to their normal end. A bad dad continues to carry their kid around for as long as their kid wants to be carried around in order to just make them happy. In order to just make them happy. He's sad, he's sad, so I wanna make him happy. So I know if I pick him up and carry him around and if he grunts and I take him to fruit snacks, he's gonna be happy. That's great, that's what I'll do. That's a bad dad. You know why? Because if he was 16 years old and I walked up here on a Sunday morning and I was carrying him and I said, sorry, everybody, but you know, my, my son Cleopatra here, you know, just points and, and grunts and I just carry him around. You're like, you're a horrible father. Like, oh, I just I wanted to make him happy. The other type of dad, when the son is on the ground going, wow, you left me here to die, says, yes, I did. I did leave you there to die. Can't walk yet. Don't think I'm going to pick you up, Cleopatra. That's you stay there, right? That's a bad dad too. What does a good dad do? Good dad walks over, reaches down, grabs his little hands and says, okay, let's go. Your legs need to get stronger. You can do it. 
keep at it. I'm not gonna let you fall. I'm not gonna let you hurt yourself. You might fall and feel a little bump on your fanny, but dad is here. I'm not going anywhere. You can feel my hands. I'm close to you, but I need you to grow and learn and walk. See, this is how much God loves you and how great a dad he is. He's not just going to carry you around like your Cleopatra and make everything hunky-dory and give you proverbial fruit snacks, right? That's what I expect of God, just to make my life easy and to make me happy. And I don't have to, you know, really draw near to him in any meaningful way that I come to church on Sundays at least, I don't know, 25 times a year. And so I expect that my life is going to kind of coast. Elijah's life didn't, nor did anybody else in the, in the entirety of Scripture, including Jesus. You can't expect your life to go the same way. But then again, God is not going to leave you in the midst of your pain, crying and whining and in difficult, not whining, but even in real, meaningful, significant pain. He's not going to leave you there. God is the God who comes alongside and picks you up and helps you to grow. It might not be your favorite thing. It's not Canaan's favorite thing. He doesn't want to learn to walk. He doesn't want to develop stronger legs. But you know what? I know what's best for him. Because I'm his dad, and I love him. God comes along, and he speaks to you in that still, small voice, and he walks with you in the midst of your pain. He says to you, I love you. I'm your dad. Not only that, I'm God. So I know what's best for you. Just keep walking. Just keep walking, and I'm not going to let you go. He is near to you in the midst of your pain. Would you pray with me? I deliberately didn't use any hypothetical examples this morning about what you might be going through because I don't know what you're going through. Only you know what you're going through. Could be relational, could be financial, could be spiritual. You could know the root of your pain and suffering and difficulty. You may not know the root of your pain and suffering and difficulty. But God does. So my invitation to you, my exhortation to you this morning is to begin to draw near to God and ask him to come near to you on his terms. God, be near to me in the community that I experience. Be near to me in the common grace that I experience when I go outside after this. God, be near to me as I hear this music this morning. Be near to me on your terms. Show up. Continue to make me holy. I don't expect that you make me happy all the time. God, come and be near. I want to give you just a moment to have that conversation with God just between you and him. God, just like Elijah, some of us are sitting under a broom tree, hiding away in a cave, afraid, ashamed, and in the middle of pain and difficulty. So we ask that you would come near.
Make us aware of your presence with us. Make us aware of your nearness to us. Come near. God, and we don't expect it in an earthquake or a fire or a mighty wind. We don't expect any of those things. God, just speak to us in a quiet whisper. Speak to us even in the midst of silence. Remind us of your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, God's people said.